Oh, okay, here we go. Uh, welcome podcast number five down the rabbit hole with heavy metal baseball, um, where we take high level baseball concepts, try to break them down, uh, make them accessible to players, everyday coaches. And for episode number five, we have another guest, uh, Ed Lucas. Ed, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you guys? I'm, I'm fantastic. I have no complaints. I'm doing well. Uh, and you currently are the assistant uh, hitting coordinator with the San Francisco Giants, correct? That's right. First year. And walk us through the rest of your bio. I mean, everybody wants to know kind of what the expertise are. Obviously, me and Robert aren't carrying a lot, carrying a lot of expertise whatsoever outside of being able to get guys like you to come talk to us. So walk us your bio walks through your career and you know how you ended up with the San Francisco Giants before we kind of jump into this thing. Absolutely. Um, I grew up in Central Florida. Um, played a bunch of different sports growing up. Uh, was a, a big football guy. Ended up going to, to Dartmouth College to play both uh, football and baseball. Ended up quitting the football team after my fr- freshman year, though. Um, got drafted by the Kansas City Royals uh, in 2004. Um, spent a lot of time in the minor leagues. Um, before I was fortunate enough to get a couple of years in uh, 2013 and 2014 with the Miami Marlins. Um, my last year playing was 2016, took a job with the Marlins as their administrative coach and replay assistant um, in the big leagues, which was an uh, unbelievable opportunity. Just kind of lucked into that one. It was just timing and opportunity. Um, spent two years there with the Marlins before I took a job with the Phillies as a player information assistant. Um, and then I became the hitting coordinator with the Milwaukee Brewers. And this is my first year here in San Francisco as the assistant hitting coordinator. And for those of us who don't know, we, you know, what is, what's a hitting coordinator do for guys like me who are only on the amateur side, who've ever been on the amateur side, uh, your high school coach, uh, you got a high school coach, an assistant coach. And they essentially handle everything. So what does a hitting coordinator do? Um, it's a little bit of a thing. Um, kind of oversee um, all of our, our hitting processes, um, hitting coaches um, from the DR up to triple, triple A. Um, try to make sure that our development strategies are kind of in line and everybody's, um, you know, on the same page about, you know, what guys are going to be working on, what they need to be working on, strengths, weaknesses, and then uh, developing, you know, the kind of strategies and, and programs um, to make sure that these guys are you know, getting a chance to, to, you know, help the big league team and, and how, you know, three to five years. And, and, and so these guys, the hitting coordinator, his primary focus is the non-major league teams, is the hitting coordination for the minor league, or do, do they, do they uh, work with the major league club at all? Um, I, I think like in my experiences, um, I've, I've spent time in, in major league spring training, um, because you're going to have your guys that, you know, get sent down and end up in triple A and double A. It's also a good opportunity to spend a lot of time with your, uh, the big league hitting coaches. It's very important. I think, you know, just to, to, again, kind of be synced from, from top to bottom and make sure that the ideas and information, um, you know, that's flowing both ways, both up and down, and, and just make sure that there's like some coherence within the organization. Okay, thank you, thank you. Uh, I think before we get started, I think we would need to mention. Uh, I was telling Jared the story of where the word metal came from. Uh, that you were, <laughs> we had a hitting coach meeting uh, at, at spring training last year, and and you it was like your word of the day or, or something along those lines, and you introduced metal, and I just I fell in love with that word, and then when we got together and. Uh, we we're talking about what to name it. Uh, I was like, we, we have to call it heavy metal baseball. So officially on record, uh, we're, we're crediting Ed Lucas as, as the, that's the reason why we, our facility is called heavy metal. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm humbled. Um, it is just <laughs> such a really cool word though. Um, and it's something that like, I don't like, it's kind of an odd word. Like people don't use it um, outside of like one particular usage, right? Like you test the metal of, you know, whatever, like, I, the example I always use is like, you know, the, the football team's defense, their metal was really tested by that, you know, 15 play drive. Um, but the definition is a, a person's ability to cope well with difficulties or to face a demanding situation in a spirited and resilient way. Um, and that's, I mean, that's hitting, that's what it, it is. Um, kind of 
all encapsulated by that one word. So um, it was it was something last year that I really kind of wanted to build a almost like a keep as a buzzword, maybe make some T-shirts, but we got shut down pretty quick. And uh, and and Robbie kind of jumped on it and and took yeah. off. Our- <laughs> we took it, we branded it, and put the metal tree. Uh, uh, did, did, I don't know if you've seen the logo. Uh, we went so far, and and Robert does the letter with the pronunciation. And on my hat here, you can see the metal tree. Um, do you know what the metal tree is and why we picked that? Um, I, Rob told me a couple months ago, but I, if you can refresh my memory. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a red royal maple hammer tree that was like scientifically engineered uh, to withstand like pestilence and drought and uh, viruses and uh, bugs, anything. Um, and when you actually put it in an environment, it actually seeks out other trees. So the other trees have to get stronger or it kills those trees. So it was like the personification of adapt or die. I love it. I love it. And I did get my t-shirt. Um, that was my, my negotiating, my <laughs> skills right there was yes. Steal my word. All I, all I want is a t-shirt, right? Yeah. The, uh, the, uh, as we, you know, the, as Robert's raised Dilbert's. So, I mean, when you, when you're negotiating with a couple of Dilbert's from Amarillo, Texas, that was as good as it's going to get anyway. <laughs> we really have to offer. So you, you really came out ahead on that deal so far. Well, hey, I like my um, my uh, first series T-shirt. I'm I'm honored. Uh, so going into question number one, a conversation that I remember a lot of the hitting coaches were having last year was uh, should should we burn the tees? That was the that was the phrase that kept coming up was was should we burn the batting tees? Uh, so do you think we should get rid of tees? Like is using a tee kind of detrimental or beneficial? Yeah, credit to Bobby Spain on that one. Um, he was the one that was not a huge fan and that was his kind of catchphrase. Um, and I, I thought it was hilarious. Um, I mean, I think there's a time and a place for him. Um, I'm not a huge fan. I think pretty much anything that you can accomplish with a T can usually be accomplished pretty easily, like one or two steps up the difficulty chain. Um, you know, whether it be flips or, you know, whatever your, your capabilities or environment might be. Um, that being said, like if it's part of a guy's routine um, and he's, you know, especially you know, here in professional baseball, like I'm not going to tell a guy that's been hitting off a tee for 25 years and is, you know, super successful and, and on the door of the, the big leagues that he can't use a tee. I mean, that's silly to me. Um, and, and there's certain, you know, instances where, you know, you might be trying to pattern new movement. Um, you know, it, there's, there's a time and a place for it, but I think, on a large scale, um, usually it can be replaced by something that has a touch more difficulty or, or a couple more variables because that's what that's what hitting is really. You know? And that I mean that's an interesting point because that the idea of the ritual of getting into a place a good place, mainly where you're going to hit, while while with a big league hitter or more accomplished hitter, I can see where uh, on a skill adapting a skill, it's not going to do a lot for them, but maybe gets them into a place mentally that they're, they're better able to prepare on a more difficult, uh, more difficult task. Well, it's interesting. Cause like when you, like we know with, with blast sensors and stuff, your, your swing off the tee and your swing off of a live moving ball are, are, are different. Uh, and so it's, it's interesting to, to, I think to think about like, why, why would you still want to hit off the tee knowing that those two types of swings are different? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I've, there's been a couple guys that I've tried to prove that point to uh, via, you know, blast and, and K motion and just shown them how different their swings actually are when they're training off a tee and when they're even just, you know, taking flips or, or hitting off a machine. Um, it's amazing. Like kind of how much your, your attack angle and your, your sequencing can be affected just by that stationary kind of object set a little bit deeper. Your attention is not focused where it typically is. I know we try to tell guys to, to set up in a place where, you know, you're looking at the pitcher and then turn your attention to where the T is. But the reality is that rarely happens. And I think guys, even in their setup, start to get a little more like turned in gradually over time. And um, it's just, you know, again, it's, it's, it's one of those, it's, it's a tool in the toolbox. Um, and uh, hitting is a spiritual thing too. Like it's hard for guys to, to, you know, hit without help. Um, and, you know, I can't really denigrate the tea too much because I've had some some good times in my life where you just grab the tea and go to the park by yourself or 
after a game when everybody else has gone home and, you know, just kind of reevaluated your life and your swing and, you know, just you, you and the T. Well, that, that, that goes to the kind of the second question we have and talking about the hitting environment, right? And the T has been a staple of that thing for uh, as long as baseball has been around and there's been upgrades and new tees and stuff like that. And, and people were trying to re reinvent the wheel on that. But uh, the question is about the environment of how we practice hitting. Um, are we as coaches, are we as facilitators, are we making the environment that players are working in too easy? Um, I, I think so. Yes. Generally speaking, um, I think, from, like across the industry, um, we're, we're starting to make strides. I think everyone's now like come to the realization that, you know, coach pitch BP every single day. Um, if you go, you know, you got guys that are, are trying to develop, trying to become big league hitters and just hitting off the tee, taking flips, taking coach pitch batting practice is not preparing you uh, for the game or at least not preparing you to become a big league hitter. Um, so anytime we can, add any sort of variation to that or any sort of, you know, uh, different variable that, that gets the, the difficulty level up to, to replicate what we're going to see in the game, um, I, I think is, is beneficial. So I, I think there's a time and a place for your, for your normal batting practice. And there's time and a place for, um, you know, exercises that are going to build confidence and, you know, get guys locked in. Um, but you know, when it comes to skill acquisition, we're not learning too much from your, your typical you know, 40 foot, um, coach pitch batting practice. I think, uh, I think it comes, I heard that, I can't remember who said it. Um, they were comparing coach pitch to when kids start facing other pitchers. And it really made me think of the difference between like, uh, live hitting and, and hitting off a coach. Like the coach is trying to hit your back and trying to make you feel confident about yourself. And when you get in the game, the pitcher's doing the exact opposite. He's trying to miss your bat. And so you're not even replicating uh, the, the intent of the person throwing to you with, with Coach VP most of the time. Uh, I remember hearing the story about Barry Bonds paid a guy to like follow him around and throw short box VP uh, to him from like 50 feet a couple times a week. He's still with us. He's still here. Still uh, chewing guys up. He's got a nice little cutter, good little slider. And uh I mean, these guys are still hitting off them to this day. Like, I, you know, last time I was out here in Scottsdale a couple of weeks ago with the big league team, he's he's still there in the cage, still firing away. But, I mean, yeah, I think Barry had a good idea, Wait, you know, however long ago that was. Well, and, you know, Ted Williams was a big uh, proponent of that, that he would ask guys to throw to him because he actually chastised a player, again, legend, I'm, you know, drawing from memory, that uh, he chastised a player, a teammate of his, because he said, let me see some curveballs. And Ted Williams kind of came on the loot and said, do you think that's going to happen in the game? All right. You get to say, throw me a curveball. He's going to shake his head. Yes. And you get the curveball three times in a row. And uh, was just reading MVP machine and uh, was listening to an account about Trevor Bauer. I think it was Joey Votto and hot cold zones, but he said, you know, it doesn't matter how good you are. The great hitters will cover up that cold zone. If you show them the same pitch three times in a row and, you know, but that's, <clears throat> You know, that's what we're doing in a roundabout way with, with the way things work currently, especially on the facility side of things, is the eight-year-old kid comes in, he hits off the tee for 10 minutes, the instructor gives him flippies for 10 minutes, then he does some real-life BP, and after that half hour, they, they say, you've done good. And the kid's full of confidence, right? He leaves there feeling confident because he's hit everything, and he's just had a real good time. And then, like Robert said, he gets into the, the game situation, and the guy across from him doesn't want to hit his bat. And he doesn't want that kid to feel good about himself. And uh, I, I, myself, whatever it's worth, in my opinion, has always kind of angered me because that's false confidence, right? And it's a false belief in your ability. And for, for young kids, I think that might be part of the way why we have kids walk away from the game because we didn't challenge them in the environment to better them as hitters when the, uh, the, the umpire said play ball. What's funny you bring that up too about, you know, kind of Ted Williams and back of the day, like that's, that's how they would prepare, right? The facilities were different and either, you know, there wasn't 8 million coaches on every big league team um, and they didn't have pitching machines. So, I mean, those pitchers would get out before the game, the guys that weren't pitching that day and pitch to the hitters and that was batting practice. 
and uh, you know somehow in the evolution of both the facilities and starting to get cages, you know, both like in big league stadiums, but like you know just at, at youth facilities and. I don't know. We've, we've kind of gotten away from that aspect. And especially as we learn more about like pitch counts and, you know, trying to save guys arms and all that stuff. Um, you know, it's just not feasible to have your own pitchers throwing to your hitters, but like if, if that was feasible and I mean, it is like we've seen teams now hiring BP pitchers, um, you know, pitchers that, you know, maybe kind of, you know, I don't want to say fizzled out, but um, you know, got to a high level, but weren't, able to stick in the big leagues or, you know, maybe fought some injuries um, and paying them to, to throw high, high level, like, you know, live BPs to our guys multiple times a week. Um, and I think that's, that's incredibly beneficial, right? Like what's going to make you a better hitter facing, you know, a triple A pitcher or, you know, facing your 65 year old manager that's throwing 55 miles an hour if he's right. lucky. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed every year that I've coached that the L screen keeps moving closer and closer to the hitters. So I can uh, at least challenge them, you know, start off throwing from the hill and now it's 20, you know, 30 feet out and officially got more out enough. I don't know if I can throw it past anybody even 30 feet anymore. So, you know, I, I need a couple of those guys myself to come in and, and throw if you, if you can spare any. Well, it's, it's so funny too, right? Like there's so many coaches that are yippy about batting practice and like almost talk themselves out of even throwing it because, you know, they see reactions from the hitters and they feel bad because they can't throw strikes or they're only throwing, you know, one out of four, but that's, that's what, that's what hitting is. Like, don't feel bad about it. Like you're, that's almost like a game environment, you know, like, I don't know if you're going to throw it right. Like nobody's ever going to see 40 miles an hour right down the middle, you know, like that's, like, I don't know. Um, so I don't know. I encourage the coaches like, Hey, like it's great. Great. That you're a good BP thrower and you can, you know, hit that spot 10 times in a row, but try to mix it up a little bit, mix in some balls, you know, make it a decision. Don't, you know, just get this kind of be, practice. I always thought it'd be cool to, to take like your coaching staff and put them all through like a rap soto reading. And that way you could build out like, okay, which coach has the best slider uh, what coach, you know, what, like all the spin axes and everything, you can match them up with what guys are going to see that week. And then, I mean, surely there's guys smarter than me that could put the distances and the, and the proper angles out to get as close as possible uh, to mimic all that stuff. But surely, you know, on, on a staff, the size that you guys work with, you have enough guys that have a, a decent mix of pitches uh, that, that from a certain distance would, would be challenging enough uh you know, if it's set up correctly. So I, that would, I, if I ever like became a college coach, which is one of my goals is that would be one of the things that I would do is I would have my whole coaching staff like wrap. So we know their entire arsenal uh, and match them up accordingly. Well, I'm not going to lie. Like I've spent a lot of time over the past two years working on my slider. Like it's like, I'm not trying to make a comeback here. Like I'm not trying to be not trying to, you know, make a comeback as a pitcher, but I am trying to, to develop myself to the point where I can give the guys a good look, you know, cause I can throw a fastball for a strike and I can challenge them that way. But, you know, I don't also don't want to hit them in the dome either and throw neck balls. So I'm trying to figure out how I can uh, throw some somewhat uh, accurate slider and at least mix it up and give these guys a good look. I've actually developed a curveball because uh, I can't throw my fastball past people anymore. So, yep. By, by rate of survival to keep my own pride intact from having high school kids just take me yard all day is I developed pretty good 12-6 uh, curveball can drop in there so I can still talk a little bit of trash. Yeah. That's the thing, too. It's fun. That's fun. It's fun for you guys. It's fun for them, too. Like, they don't want it. Like, it instantly just raises the environment to the point that, you know, that that's what you're looking for. And even if it's not replicating the game, per se, or it's not, you know, it's only 70% of the way there, it's better than the alternative. Um, which is something that we're you know, always trying to improve upon. Well, that, that leads that leads pretty nicely into our third question, which is that question about hitting environments. And how can a coach, how do we as coaches build better learning environments for our hitters? Uh, you know, again, just knowing what we know now is Flippy's T-work, the light BP and go home. How, how do we make that better? Um. Variation, first and foremost, uh, whether it be, you know, velocity or location or angles, um, distances, doesn't matter. Like, 
backgrounds, lighting, like, and I uh, start to get in all this stuff that you guys, I'm sure, are eventually going to talk about or, or, you know, are kind of known for um, these hostile hitting environments. But I, I think just elevating again that environment, just mixing it up to the like point that you're just not doing the same thing over and over again. Like that's a win. And I hear, you know, as I listen to podcasts and you know hitting Twitter for whatever that's worth, um, you know, which I, I love, I shouldn't say it like that. Like I love following along and I've learned so much from it. Um, but you know, there's just a lot of, of noise too, but I see a lot of these guys, you know, there, you know, somebody comes up with this creative new drill or, or guys that, you know, played for a long time might not necessarily understand like what's trying to be accomplished and, just a lot of trash talking about like, Oh, we're just making stuff up for the sake of like being different. And you're doing this for the sake of Twitter and the gram. And I, I don't think so. Like, it's just, it's like, is that not probably going to teach you more than again, like your normal, like, what am I learning from 40 foot coach pitch? Like absolutely nothing. Like at least maybe this is, is helping hitter problem solve and do something different or, you know, exposes him to an angle that he might only see one time all of next year, but now he's seen it. Um, he's trying to like, you know, repat, like just to figure out his, his, his movement patterns. Like, I don't know, it's, it's all learning. And even if it doesn't work, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work. So you go try something else the next day. Like, I don't know. Um, I just, I, it's a difficult task. And, you know, the more you can expose your guys to just different variations and, and increase the amounts of variables that are going on, I think is a win. Well, that that was you know that tie you know, beat Tim nicely from Bflex, who uh, is you know all about implicit training, which how the brain communicates, and that's one thing he'll he he tell you that after three different after three times of repetition, the brain automates a process and produces serotonin levels, and no new patterns are going to be learned after that. So, him uh, he would con- confirm with you that I mean or agree with you that variation is an environment where the brain learns best, where the brain picks up a new task. And I'm with you. you. You do see hitting Twitter and you see a kid do something or a guy do something. And your first reaction is what in God's name are they doing? But you're right. That may make sense for them. that. That may help that athlete. That may have made that environment challenging or enough for that athlete picked up a skill acquisition that no one even anticipated. Uh, because the grand mystery of environments and how, and the, you know, things being Robert or find ourselves trying to on our own facility is what is the brain telling the athlete to do? Well, we found that we like what Tim taught us a little bit about it. And then we've been kind of looking into it is how, like when you can get the brain to do something new and, and start to be successful at it, it releases more dopamine and that, that speeds up learning. Uh, so we've been trying to create environments and it's, it's hard because you can't push the failure threshold too far because then it can't associate, um, you know, success with what the task is. It just has no idea how to do that. So it, it, it's, it's kind of a, almost an art in that part where you, you have to figure out where too far is, but you also have to be able to dial it back and say, okay, this is where, this is where new is and we can make variations off of this failure threshold. Well, and I think the the kind of culture that you have and the, the relationship that you have with your players too, like you need to get to the point where as you're introducing new stuff, it's, you're not just doing something for the sake of doing it or because it's new or because it's different. Like hopefully at that point, like you can explain to the player the reasoning behind the drill, um, what we're trying to accomplish, why this, this new variation um, is applicable to whatever skill it is that we're trying to acquire. Um, and they'll have a question to ask questions. They'll know, um, what success means in that particular drill. I think that's something that we miss a lot where guys like kind of misunderstand, like what the, the goal of the drill is like, not everything is, you know, hit the ball well, and not everything is, you know, make sure that we're moving properly. There's, it depends on the particular drill that you're doing, you know, what your, what your own, um, judgment of a, of a a win or a beneficial outcome is, and they need to understand that too. So, you know, I, I think as you introduce these things, like that's, that's the type of conversation you need to be having instead of just like, you know, there, there's, there are certain drills where you can just kind of roll out the ball and be like, 
try to hit it. And then there's also times when it takes a little more nuanced explanation and you need guys to understand what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Well, you know, there in where you start looking at different environments and, you know, one of the ones that Robert and I are kind of for, I'm, I'm really fascinated with, you know, Robert, is just flow states, right? Or, and how do we achieve flow states? You touched on it right there. The first thing that they talk about or Chick, Dr. Chick sent me, I talks about it, is you have to have a clear goal. Right. That's the first step of entering a flow state and uh, probably not as much on the professional side, but uh, when I was a player, I was a, I was a why kid. Why are we doing this? And uh, I was always accused of questioning my coaches. Uh, it was never the fact. I was always just curious, why are we doing this? And, um, you know, I know on the amateur side, we've got to get better. What you say, if a kid comes and you just say before you even ask why, I want you to know why you're doing this. So we know the goal is clear. So therefore, we create a better environment uh, that the player is, is looking for on what do you, like you said, sometimes it's just hit the ball as hard as you can. But, you know, this time it's, we're going to show you this pitch. We want this to happen. As long as the goal is clear, you know, that's the first step to entering that flow state where that dopamine environment is produced, where the brain says, I want to keep going. This is fun. I want to do that again. So. <laughs> yeah. And I'm willing to accept failure as I, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. Not, I'm not, I'm not discouraged because I don't understand what it is that we're trying to do. And all I know is I'm not doing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, we, we made that mistake. I think the first time we did the hostile hitting environments and we, we put the kid, we had a, a, a couple college guys that did it. And uh, our high school kid that uh, he's a, he's a sophomore and he, he uh, has a facility record with the exit wheel of 103 um, off the, off a high velo machine. Um, so we had them do the eye patches, uh, and the earplugs, and then we turned the lights out and had the spotlight. So then they had to do the eye patches and the earplugs again with the spotlight on, but every three balls, uh, they were having to use a different random bat and everything was off a high velo pitching machine. Uh, and we kept changing the speeds. Yeah. And we kept changing the speeds on the pitch and they were so frustrated afterwards. Like he, someone, they just like laid down on the ground and were like questioning life decisions and whether <laughs> yeah, they should ever play baseball again. And it was, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, they came to work for us or came with, he was there for a month with us. He was there every day. If we were there for six days a week, he took two days off after we, he went through the hostile hitting environment. So that's uh, when we realized we, we have to, <laughs> we have to like scale into it. Uh, you can't just throw it all in at once. Like you have to scale into it until the brain gets to the point where this is no longer new. I'm, I'm kind of bored with this. And so then you start right. something else on top of that. And then you layer, we didn't do that. We're like, well, let's just, <laughs> no, let's just throw in the deep end. I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and there's something to be said for that, but I, I think you're right. Like, you know, maybe layer <laughs> stuff is probably no, we both even trailed big around here at heavy metal, <laughs> big, and 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 then see what happens, and then go back and go. Why are these kids all leaving the facility? <laughs> Why are these kids off in between sessions? This is odd. So, if not failing, you're not trying, right? Yeah. Uh, moving on to our next question, uh, kind of, you know, when there's kind of been this war going on between pitchers and, and hitters, and it, it kind of seems for the last couple of years, especially that has strikeouts have, have gone up and, and throwing velocity has gone up and, you know, uh, pitching ninja, you see pitching ninja everywhere and, and guys, you know, having swords of the night. What, why does it seem like pitchers are so far ahead of hitting right now? Like to the point where they've even, there's even been discussions of moving the pitching mound <coughs> two feet. Um. I mean, these guys are good, right? Like we finally learned, you know, kind of how to push the limits of the human body. And now it seems like everybody throws upper nineties. I know that's not the case, but just the percentage of guys that actually do um, has like jumped by so much, like just in the, like the, uh, the scope of my career, like when I got first got to AAA in 2007. And then when I retired in 2016, like went from, you know, maybe you might have a guy in the back end of the bullpen that throws 95 or two guys to like literally everyone in the bullpen and probably two or three of the starters are throwing, you know, 95 plus. Um, so that's the easy answer, right? Is like these guys are just really, really good now. Um, but, you know, the long winded answer, I guess, is, um, you know, first of all, they've figured out a way to 
to apply like all this new technology and all the information that we're getting, um, they've figured out how to apply it better and faster than, than hitters have. Um, and that's also easier because it's a, a proactive action and there's not as many variables for pitching as there are for hitting. Um, but you know, that's, that's just the truth is they, you know, jumped on all of this, this information and technology and, and have implemented it and applied it better and are just ahead of us right now. And that, that's not to say that that hitters can't catch up. Um, you know, this game is very cyclical and we're always kind of, you know, it was sinkers and, and then guys started raking sinkers. And so then it was high forcing and, you know, now guys are trying to figure out how to hit that, but then also the sinkers coming back a little bit because they're learning about seam shifted wake. And now like, it's, it's crazy. Like there's, there's always one step ahead of hitters. And so it's always a, a challenge to, to not just like, you know, get ahead, but just keep up. Um, you know, guys aren't, establishing the fastball anymore like that's not a thing i know that was a thing for a long time you know guys are you know starting to go right to their best stuff uh right off the bat um there's so much information about both like pitchers strengths and hitters weaknesses that there's not you know hitters are or excuse me pitchers are, are pitching to hitters weaknesses um and when a hitter has a weakness that they can't you know, address, um, which, you know, just has a hole that's exploitable. Like pitchers are going to that over and over and over again until you prove that you can hit it. And I think you guys, or we might've mentioned off there or might've been at the beginning. I can't even remember, but, um, you know, your highest level hitters are going to make that adjustment every single time, but there's also a lot of hitters that aren't able to make that adjustment. Um, and now pitchers are, are, are know when that's the case and they're going to continue to go there. Um, so I don't know. There's well, this is hitting kind of reasons. Cal, right? It, it, and I mean, I know on my own end, it's, it's kind of like if the guy's going good on the hitting side, you leave him alone. Right? Uh, is is hitting more uh, sacred than than pitching? You know, as far as the ability to coach pitching, is it always been viewed as something that's a little more? You just leave that guy alone. Um. <laughs> I don't know. That's a tough question. Um, I think there's more definable, uh, or at least right now, like there's more definable, um, like on the pitching side, we know what plays, right? Like, you know, um, you know, what, what profiles work um, and you kind of set like a, a, a goal with a pitch and then figure out how to get there. And then once you're there, you know how to do it and that's it. Whereas, you know, with hitting, um, you know, you can have the best swing in the world. You can have the most efficient, powerful movements, um, but you're not always going to get that fastball at 90 miles an hour right down the middle. You're going to get a, a variety of pitch types and pitch locations and pitch speeds and, how you adapt to that variation is just as important as what your swing actually looks like. Right. Um, so I don't know. I think it is like, uh, in a, how did you refer to it right there? Did you say spiritual or sacred cow, sacred cow, sacred? Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't know. It's definitely just, just nuanced and, and I don't know. I think we're, we're defining, we're starting to like get to the point where like, pitching is it's it's not like this i don't know just, i don't know i think you're i think you're right i think you're well, there's if, something if, to it i don't know i don't even know a good way to describe it but like if we're sitting around waiting you know as, as a hitter if we're sitting around waiting for the pitcher to make a mistake right and, and that is our approach i'm not claiming but and pitchers are only getting exponentially better where they don't make a mistake or their mistakes are less likely then that approach really has to change. Like you said, cause you're not going to get 90 down the middle unless somebody messes up. Uh, and you know, maybe, maybe when pitching wasn't as, as, as developed it is now guys made more mistakes, but I mean, you, you watch some of these guys throw and they don't make mistakes. It doesn't appear to be, you know, I can, I may sit on my couch, you know, I'm going, I, you know, watching a guy like Dustin may throw, uh, I mean, I would be 
wasn't good blindfolded is if you gave me what is that that's sorcery like that's not yeah. fair <laughs> no and so but it goes to show like guys are hitting it too though which is amazing to me like and they're not guys are good and the human body is amazing like the fact that somebody can actually hit that i read something recently about like grandmaster level chess um our, our hitting coordinator michael bradar is starting to be a, a little bit of a chess fiend so he's my competitive nature i'm like oh well he's super into chess right now i need, need to get good at chess too so i can pat, battle him you know um but like at that level at being white um or, or i think it's white that goes first um you know having that first move like if if you're black and the person that's playing first is like grandmaster level like basically the best you can hope to do is draw um and that's kind of what hitting is like um you know when you've got a guy that's got incredibly good stuff not not that you're necessarily playing to draw but they're always going to have the advantage of going first and, and controlling the situation and we're always going to have to be adapting to whatever it is that you're doing like yes you want to play to your strengths however you can go up there for four at bats and try to sit on one particular pitch and never get it and come back to the dugout four times with four punchies. It's like, yeah, like I want you to play to your strengths, but at some time, you know, at some point you got to make an adjustment and like, you know, just adapt to what it is that they're throwing up there at you and try to yeah, put a bat on it. Try to. I think uh, one of the variables that, that seem to get missed, like they, it's almost like they took what worked with pitching, uh, and tried to apply it directly to hitting. And yes, like guys are efficient movers, but I mean, I, I actually read an article, I get in trouble for this a lot. My wife will be talking to me and I'll be scrolling through uh, neuroscience journals on my phone, uh, you know, kind of nodding and pretending to listen. Uh, <laughs> none of that's, none of that's aggravating. He does it at the facility. And the idea that he just lied about nodding and pretending to listen, he throws the hood over his head he stares in his computer and you can tell him the building's on fire and there's no acknowledgement whatsoever. So he had said this publicly, Rob. <laughs> I'm, pretty, I'm pretty open and honest. Some would say to a fault. Uh, Not for the public, but for your wife. <laughs> uh, so I read that they looked at elite level athletes and there was like no correlation between uh, visual reaction times and gaze proficiency. So you can have the best visual reaction time in the world, but still have terrible gaze optimization. And so the, the more I read about like how the eyes respond and how the brain interprets vision, I really think that's like the, the lowest hanging fruit or the piece that everyone's missing is you have to see and process the information of the ball and base that off of your internal models that you have to actually make an attempt at hitting the ball like the, the the ideal swing is only going to make up for so much deficiencies in, in input uh i even read a, a while back and i showed this to jared that your uh eye moves better in cardinal directions so straight up and down and horizontal left to right but when it goes in a diagonal it actually moves slower so then it made me wonder well i wonder how many hitters are tracking the ball in a diagonal direction instead of staying horizontal it, like it's incredible like <laughs> yes yes <laughs> oh man um it's and as as we like get smarter and we start to identify these things um you know like you know start to question and that's that's always the goal right is to kind of like I think a lot of the stuff that's considered old school or that's been done for a long time, um, you know, it's even, even as we, we start to like retest it. Now that's the thing with like this you know, new technology and we can test these things now and a lot of it's going to hold true. You know, a lot of uh, the, the old adages and, and the stuff that's being taught, like is being taught for a reason and it's been around for a long time because it works and there's other stuff that's going to dramatically change. But like, just because we're taking the time to like challenge our own assumptions and like, you know, take a scientific approach to this, to the game doesn't mean necessarily that we're trying to do everything differently or prove everybody wrong. Um, I think there's a lot of wisdom and experience in this game that is like, 
I just have, still have so much to learn. Um, but like th these are the types of stuff, these are the frontiers that are still out there. And, you know, I'd been hearing for a long time about, you know, seeing the ball deep and, and, you know, how, how to take a, your two strike approach, but like it's, seeing the ball, like that's not even possible really. Like you can't even like see the ball and make a decision. Like you almost just have to like go up there and trust your instincts and like intuitively allow your body to interpret what it is that it thinks it's even interpreting. That's the, that's the other thing is like, you may that you're just, it's perception, right? Like, and I know you're huge, you guys are huge on this stuff. Um, but like, that's the reason that pitchers are, are winning too, is like, they've broken our internal models. They know it's a throw um, that appears to be different than it, it actually is to, to hitters, you know? Um, and, and why these, these four seam fastballs with incredible amounts of vertical movement are so successful. Um, and guys, it's not the launch angle swing. It's because guys' brains can't comprehend the fact that a ball is not succumbing to gravity at the pace that they're accustomed to, you know, like, and until guys understand that that's the reason they're going to continue to swing and miss three times every at bat. And it's not the swing. It's, it's the brain. Yeah, there uh, the old Thomas the Thomas Jefferson quote you know question with boldness the very existence of God, right? But uh, it seems sometimes in a dugout is do not question with boldness the existence of hitting. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and that is this one thing reason why we talk to guys like you why we like it is because we want to ask questions. And I really hope you know I was privileged enough to sit in clinics and uh, heard a, uh, the head coach for the uh, the fin the Finnish team at one point said, if I come back five years from now and I'm teaching you the same and I'm coaching the same thing I did five years from now that I failed miserably. And uh, the idea of a failure as a coach, we need to understand that we will fail miserably. I tell people when I met Robert uh, after our first hour conversation, I felt like writing a letter of apology to a lot of my players because in an, unintentionally I had taught them some things that wasn't correct. It wasn't factual. It was bad information that I had, I had uh, pared down and, uh, and I, I mean, I, I think maybe sometimes pitchers did a better job of that, maybe because maybe they're made up. As they said, I'm going to ask questions and I'm going to get as much information as I can to be as good as I can. And sometimes with hitters, we don't question with boldness. Now, if there's a guy hitting 330, don't mess with him, right? Now, he may have some significant flaws that we could pick up on, but, you know, we, we, we don't want to, we don't ask too, we don't want to ask too many questions. That's kind of how I see it from the outside looking in. I could be completely off base. I've been wrong before. I actually kind of live in a world of being wrong. I'm really good at it. So I think that <laughs> segues into question five because I've, you know, I obviously I had to interview for the Brewers to get the job and I had interviewed with the Cubs and I'd interviewed with, well, I didn't really interview with the Yankees. They just sent me an email and said, don't call us, we'll call you. Uh, and then I've talked with a couple of teams in the past couple of months and I always get the same question is, you, you, if you had a hitter that goes and gets help outside the organization, you know, how would you handle the situation? And so me being kind of an outsider to professional baseball, it kind of seems like this is a, a pretty ongoing problem, it seems. So what do you do or why do you think so many hitters uh, are going outside the organization to get help? Uh, I get asked this question a lot. Um, and like, I mean, I think there's, incredibly like valid reasons for it and personally i don't believe that we should necessarily be like competing against you know third party coaches or people outside the organization because i mean the truth of the matter is right like there's a ton of brilliant people out there and there's probably you know not probably I, ego to say probably there absolutely are like a ton of hitting coaches out there that are better than me at my job. So my job is to get these hitters better and get them to the big leagues. And so, I don't know, I think it's kind of, I don't know, there's a lot of ego involved to, to think that like, that's a bad thing. Right. And now there are probably some guys out there that might, you know, don't have the best ideas or have flawed ideas or, you know, convince guys to do stuff that maybe they shouldn't be doing. But, um, I don't know. That's the process of, 
of like developing as a hitter too, is like figuring out what works for you and what doesn't work for you and, and being able to coach yourself and not having to rely on hitting coaches to tell you exactly what to do. Um, you know, we're there to, to kind of empower the hitters and help them learn for themselves, not to tell them what to do. And, you know, it's, it's tough too. Like as I start to, to grow as a parent and as my kids get older and, you know, you love them and you want to protect them as much as you can, but you understand that like they have to go out and experience the world for themselves or they're never going to learn. And that's kind of the same way here too. Um, you know, like there's, there's good and bad anywhere you look. Um, and so I don't think that like guys seeking outside help or like trying stuff when they go home for the off season is necessarily a bad thing. If, you know, you do a good job while you're in season and, and in your communication throughout the off season on what they're working on and what they're trying to accomplish. Um, I think there's a lot of benefits from letting guys kind of go outside and experience different things and, and hear new language and get stuff from a different perspective. Well, in, in, in reading, you know, everything old is new again. Right. And in reading, uh, some, you know, MVP machine, it speaks about, uh, Dodger town. Uh, the organization drafted you had a similar thing in Kansas City. Uh, in yeah, Kansas. baseball city, right? Yeah, that produced some pretty good teams uh, for Kansas City throughout the 80s. Um, you know, why is there no longer a Dodger town? Uh, and I know it's a tough question, is, but, you know, what, what, you know, these models worked, right? You know, they worked for Brooklyn, they worked for Kansas City, they worked for small market, you know, small market teams. What, what's become of that? You know, are, are we, are these guys seeking outside help because the organization is not providing stuff for them to, you know, get to the big leagues as quick as they possibly can? I think, and I'm, I'm probably going to go off on a tangent here. So if you need to bring me back, please bring me back. Um, <laughs> it's down the rabbit hole, Ed. It's, I, it's right. So I think one of the aspects of it too, and there's really kind of no avoiding this, despite like our, our best attempts to, you know, create a good culture and a good environment and a good, like kind of give and take, um, you know, comfortable being uncomfortable, comfortable, like failing and, and going that type of training. These, these guys, at least in professional baseball are under, and even as you go down the line, right. You're always trying to get to the next level and, there's a lot of pressure and scrutiny that guys feel on a daily basis. Like, you know, even the guys that have been playing professional baseball, that might be, you know, one of the top prospects that we have, you know, it, you know, when the GM and the big league hitting coach are behind the screen, like that, they feel that, you know, like they want to impress. And I think like you're always under the microscope. And, and so I feel like when the season's over, um, and whether you had a good year or a bad year, like it's nice to kind of like just step away from that judgment a little bit and get away and like kind of and, and obviously like we as as organizational like coaches and, and front office members like like we're it's not it's not always judgmental, but yes it's it's there's always like this evaluation perspective and so I think it's I don't know I think it's good for guys to get like outside of that and get to a spot where like they feel safe almost like just experimenting and like playing around and and failing a little bit more than they normally would within the organization go back go back home to mama where she can love you unconditionally for a little bit right yes like that's you know it's it's true like you just you want people around you that support you and you know, love you unconditionally. And this is a hard game. And I think the more people that you can have, you know, you spend a whole year with your affiliate coach or with affiliated coach and a coordinator. And, you know, it's nice to go kind of get that love from, from other people too. Um, that being said, like, I don't know, I think there's like, I think there's a realization um, when, especially now that guys are, starting to get paid a little bit more. And um, I think the, the, everything's kind of improving for the life of a, of a minor leaguer. And it's still really, really hard, but it's not like it used to be like back in the day, right? Like even big league players 
would go home in the off season and get a job and they wouldn't train. They would come back to Florida or Arizona. And that's why it was spring training because they had to work themselves back into shape. Right. Um, and maybe that's why there was such an advantage for the Dodgers, the Royals, the guys that had these like year round academies um, because you're just getting reps that these other guys aren't getting. Um, but that's still true. Right. And it has been true. And so it's always been kind of amazing to me that, you know, you give guys millions of dollars and like try to script out every minute of, of their day during the season. And then the day the season ends, you just go, okay, well, like, all right, like, go home and we'll see you in six months and we'll give you a couple phone calls and, you know, hope that you're, you know, hope that you're doing your workouts and hope that you're working on in the cage on the things that you should be working on. Um, and so there's definitely been a push um, in the last, well, I mean, probably before the last couple of years, but I've definitely seen it in the last couple of years of organizations, like trying to figure out ways to, to get got like, I know in, in Philadelphia, they had a, a pretty cool program where they partnered with the city of Clearwater. I believe it was, I don't want to misspeak. Um, but, you know, if guys were willing to stay in Clearwater for the off season, work out at the facility, um, both like in the weight room and in the cage and stuff, then, you know, they had opportunity to, you know, for a part-time job with the city of Clearwater that they could, you know, make some extra money if, if they weren't uh, a high round draft pick and didn't get a high bonus. And, um, you know, there's, kind of a lot of teams that I've seen that are building facilities or like dorms or buying hotels, you know, to kind of like house guys instead of like having to put them up at a hotel and make it more like cost efficient for players to stay in the off season. So, I mean, I think ideally that's, that's probably what organizations would want to do. Um, and whether it's budgetary or staffing or I, I don't know what it is uh, in like, just, I, I think it's starting to be more of, realization that like these are professional athletes and um you know this is a year-round job and we need to figure out a way to kind of hopefully provide what it is that they need um you know 12 months a year instead of just six well we'll uh before the last and final question one day when we're off camera we'll read you into what me and robert have, have talked about at metalville you know, we put out a tweet there that, <laughs> we put out a tweet there that uh uh, we were interested in founding Metalville, right? A place that, uh, and that, that took care of that stuff. And one nice thing about one, we're more than one nice thing about being in Amarillo, Texas. One of the nice things about Amarillo, Texas is uh, cost of living's low. And so structures that can house 50, 60 players at a given time are incredibly affordable. But, you know, we don't want to give away all of our secrets because we've only got two. Uh, we act like we got more. We've only got really two. But, uh <laughs> Yeah, it's, 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 dropped, it's, it's pushed me and Robert to want to do something like that. You know, essentially, it's, it's start a metalville where you go, you come here, you live here, uh, and we just get reps, and we get the right kind of reps administered by uh, a hitting coordinator who comes down once a month, give or take, and, you know, writes you a script for the next month, and then, and then you know, gets out of there, so – I, 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 you know, I would think that, uh, again, it's an environment among other players without the GM or the president there where, you know, maybe that environment is less stressful because you're around your peers who are experiencing the same level of stress as opposed, like you say, the big league manager is behind the screen there. You're a top prospect. The GM who's in, in the present, who's invested money into you, uh, it, it becomes a little bit healthier. And then we not, you know, maybe we shorts – Maybe we uh, get to the point where guys can get be get better, get ready quicker. Right. Well, guys, I mean, guys are competitive too, right? And this, like, that's the nature of baseball, especially professional baseball. You're playing every day. It's hard to make those adjustments or, like, I don't want to say adjustment, but, like, changes or, like, you, you might – there might be the intent to want to do stuff, but – guys aren't willing to give away at bats during the season. And so it's like when the season ends, it's like, okay, now finally I have the opportunity to kind of get out from under the lights and my stats don't count. And yeah. I don't have, not, you know, not everyone's looking over my shoulder. Every swing I, I have, I can go to a place and just kind of like commit to, to taking the time to do something properly. Um, right. And I think that, 
that's what like third party facilities and like owner operators can offer. Um, and I, I think organizations can offer that too. It's just kind of harder to do that at a large scale. Um, so I don't, it's, it's something that like, I would like to see organizations work towards more, but um, is definitely being accomplished, you know, better by guys like you. Uh, it takes us to go to our last question. Uh, it seems like every year uh, league batting averages go down more and more. So in today's game with everything that's going on, is, is 400 even possible uh, in today's game? Um, yes. Yes, it is. And I will take a hard stance on that. Um, will it happen? Uh, I don't know, but it's definitely possible. Um, like you see guys now, like, you know, Fletcher just got paid and you guys like Nick Madrigal, um, who are, are just a little bit different players than you're typically seeing right now. Like guys that are out hunting hits, um, you know, Donovan Solano with the giants, um, who I played with a long time ago and I'm now kind of, uh, reunited with like guy just finds the barrel and he doesn't have the most pop and, um, you know, he doesn't walk a ton, um, but he can hit singles and doubles. Um, and that batting average on balls in play is always going to be higher. Um, so 400 is a feat, and it's going to be really, really difficult. But I think there's always – I think there's going to be, especially with some of the new rules and stuff, um, it's going to change the incentives a little bit more, um, you know, there's going to be a little bit more value just to getting to first base. Um, and, you know, whether we see these new rules eventually get to the big leagues or not, but if it's easier to steal bases um, because of, you know, the pitchers not being able to throw over or like being having to throw over differently, or I don't know, the base is a little bit bigger. So it's shrunk by like, if it's easier to steal base, then like you don't have to hit the double. You can hit the single and then steals. And so the value of your, you know, your Fletchers and your Madrigals and your Rod Cruz and Wade Boggses um, go up. And so anytime that incentive is there, you start to see guys that develop that way because they see the carrot at the end of the, you know, at the end of the stick right now, or at least for the past 10 years, um, you know, the kind of rage is power and damage and um, rightfully so, right. That's the best way to, to put runs on the board is, is to do damage sometimes at the expense of contact. Um, but, you know, as pitching changes and as the rules change and, you know, this kind of wild chess match cyclical uh, battle between pitchers and hitters, like you're, I think you're going to see some, some guy, these like high level contact, move the ball around, hunt hit guys um, are, are might start to be valuable too now. Like if you can have that guy that also does damage, that's good too. Like that's what we're looking for. That's what we're trying to produce. But, um, you know, I, I think somebody out there at some point, it'll take a lot of luck, obviously, but somebody's going to do it. Well, like, you know, everything we've said a couple of times, everything old is new again, right? Uh, in, the, in the battle back and forth in baseball between pitchers and hitters uh, is, you know, one of the many sayings we have here in the heavy metal baseball, adapt or die, right? The hitter better, the hitters better learn how to make an adaptation or, you know, uh, career-wise they die. And, That's right. You know, whoever can make the adaptation quickest has a quickest route to that 400. Um, Ed, uh, I, I appreciate your time. Uh, it is uh, always, it's always, it's a privilege for me to speak to guys like you who've done it at a high level, coach at a high level. Um, and I can't thank you enough for taking time for, uh, with Robert and I to, to go down the rabbit hole and talk about just, uh, the game of baseball. No, I appreciate you, uh, you guys' time. Um, you know, obviously I, I follow intently. Um, I like to read about all the stuff that, uh, you guys are both thinking about and actually doing. Um, you know, I think there's, there's going to be innovation and hitting soon. Um, you know, and I don't even know what that is or, you know, 
what the the big thing's going to be, but I know that, you know, we have to look and I appreciate you guys for, uh, for really kind of pushing those boundaries. And, you know, I, I really like following along. So thanks so much for, for having me. Hey, thank you again. We'll be, we'll be seeing you. Thanks, Ed. Thanks guys.